In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And there are reading from God's word. What comes after Easter? Christians study his death on Good Friday. We study his resurrection on that next Sunday. But what happened next? It almost seems like year after year in the springtime, I have to remind us of the events that we had been studying because we seem to drop off and forget all about it after Good Friday and Easter Sunday. The answer of what happened next is 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven. I've shown you in hymns today. I've shown you in the catechism today. It's a very important piece of the Christ event, a piece of redemptive history. It's a part of our salvation that's absolutely necessary. I sometimes wonder to myself, what do Christians think? What do people think happened after Jesus rose again? Where is he now? Where is his body? What's happening? If they just stopped thinking, that would explain, I think, where people stand on the ascension. But if you think through what happened next or read from Scripture what happened next, you get to the ascension and its importance. I feel like we have to do some correction to the church, the modern church as it currently stands in America, to get back to seeing the ascension as part of this Christ event. And lest you not believe just little me, I'll quote from a professor from Westminster Theological Seminary Reformed and Presbyterian minister, Dr. Robert Godfrey, who said, and I quote, The ascension of Christ marks the pinnacle of his earthly ministry. Yet it is one of the most underappreciated aspects of Christ's work, end quote. With that quote, I agree. Since this Thursday will be 40 days after Easter, this morning we study the next major event after Easter, after the resurrection of Christ. We study the ascension. So in the Gospels, we do get some intervening statements about what happened during those 40 days. Basically, Jesus appeared to his disciples and taught them. 
That's the summary of some of his appearances. But let's start today by going back to the first of these events, the the Christ event, the first being Good Friday. Go back to Good Friday for a moment with me in your minds. The disciples had not expected Jesus to be crucified and actually die. So be aware now again as if it were a Good Friday and you're thinking about the disciples. Yes, Jesus had told them, but they never did really get it, did they? They didn't really understand that Jesus would need to be arrested, then crucified. The disciples weren't expecting. And so when it happened, what did the disciples do? They fled for their lives. They scattered. And they were still in shock about Jesus' death and his burial. They were grieving because in their minds, he was dead and that was it. He he was gone. We could say that surprise number one was the death of Christ on the cross. Now, move forward past Good Friday with me. Follow me through the events of redemptive history. The next, after Good Friday, what else did the disciples not expect? The resurrection. Again, they had been told, right, how many times did Jesus say, on the third day I'll rise again? But they never really did understand it. So you could say surprise number two was the resurrection of Christ from the grave. They're surprised again. And in Luke chapter 24, at the end of Luke's gospel, the same author that we're studying here today in the book of Acts, we read about the disciples in Luke 24 walking on the road. When Jesus, our risen Lord, appeared to them, and we read things like this, Luke 24, 45, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he's working with them and teaching them and opening their minds that it's him, he's risen, and yet they're still surprised by event number three. Surprise number three is when Jesus ascended, what we read about in our passage. It's also recorded at the end of Luke. It's interesting that the volume one, if you will, the Gospel of Luke, ends with the ascension, and volume two, the book of Acts, begins with the ascension. It's obviously an important linchpin, a hinge, to understand both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, as well as our redemption. In Luke 24, 51, Jesus parted from them and was carried up into heaven. The disciples surprised a third time, surprised by the death, surprised by the resurrection, surprised by the ascension, even though they had been told. Jesus ascended into heaven. That's what happened after Easter Sunday. Forty days later, Jesus went up into the sky and clouds back to heaven. Why is that important? Why would I jump out of our sermon series in Jeremiah to come back to this at this date? Because of the the big impact that it has upon our understanding of redemption, what it took for Jesus, what it's all about, where he is now, the, the past steps and the future steps, and then also the impact upon us of those facts, of that historical reality. Consider, for example, the reaction of the disciples to our, what I call the surprises, the different aspects of redemption. Surprise one, the death of Christ, they were shocked and grieving. Surprise two, the resurrection of Christ, their minds were opened to understand the scriptures and their hearts burned within them because Jesus appeared to them as the, the risen Lord. Surprise number three, the resurrection of Christ, we read in the last two verses of the Gospel of Luke, they worshiped Christ Jesus, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So why is the ascension important? Because it demonstrates the victory of Christ our King 
and then the resulting impact upon his disciples initially, the resulting impact on all of us as his disciples, his followers, his believers, the impact on us as Christians is the same pattern. We move from grief to joy, from confusion to worship. These are the benefits of the ascension of Christ. So the main point, if you're looking at your outline of the sermon, in the, the ascension of Christ, we learn about our king. And specifically, we learn to know him. We get to personally know him, and he leads us to be filled with joy and worship him. We move from grief to joy, from confusion to worshiping him. So we'll see these three aspects in our message, his timing, verses 1 to 7, his witnesses, verse 8, a very important verse for the uh, book of Acts, and then his plans, verses 9 through 11. So first, his timing. Look with me at the timing of verses 1 through 7. So our initiating verse, as Luke picks up volume 2, if you will, the first book refers back, the first verse here refers back to his first book, the Gospel of Luke. That's what he means in the first book, O Theophilus. He's, he's writing both to his friend Theophilus. Verse 2 refers to the ascension of Christ already. We're in verse 2 of the book, and it's already referencing the, the ascension of Christ. Verse 3 then backs up chronologically to the time of the resurrection appearances of Jesus during the 40 days prior to the ascension. Then verse 4 is a summary of what Jesus taught during that time. Basically, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of God the Father. And you might be asking yourself, what's the promise of God the Father? It's explained in verse 5 what the promise is, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks from now, Lord willing, you'll hear me talk about the Holy Spirit because we've got to finish the story of the redemptive events of Christ. The promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit was to be given if they were staying in Jerusalem. Verse 6 tells when the disciples asked Jesus a question and Jesus needed to correct them about a number of things with regard to their question. One of the things was their preference, we could say their penchant for wanting to know the timing of the kingdom. That's what their question is. If you look at it carefully in verse 6, I'll read it again. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They always want to know the future. They always want to know what's happening. What's going to be next? Tell us, tell us, tell us. But they want to know the timing over knowing Jesus himself. Is it not enough that they know Jesus, they walk with Jesus? You ever have a small child and you're taking them one place after another and you're, you're holding the child's hand to keep them from having cars hit them in the parking lot and things like that and this small child says, where are we going next? Where are we going next? I'm the parent. I'm the, the aunt or uncle. I'm caring for you. Can't you just be a kid and enjoy the ride? Why do you always have to ask, like, where are we going next? That kind of trust is missing in the, in the disciples. Why didn't they just say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our king and for taking care of us start to finish? Will you at this time restore the kingdom? The, the question in verse 6 needs various levels of correction. No, Jesus is part of what they're missing. And then in verse 7, Jesus makes it so clear that it is the Father, God the Father, who would set the timing Jesus is fully submitted to the authority of his Father in heaven regarding the timing of the events of the kingdom, of what happens first and next and after that. The Spirit would be sent. And the exact right day for that to happen is set by God the Father. So think about the events. We could all go all the way back to the beginning. 
The beginning, as I'm talking about it right now, is that Christ came initially into the world. We call it the incarnation. You and I call it Christmas, right? The coming of Christ into the world in the first place to take on human flesh, the birth of Jesus. Then you fast forward through his growing up years and his ministry as an adult. We get to our current set of events from Good Friday on. The Father then sends the Spirit down upon Christ at his baptism. He preached, did miracles, was crucified, rose again. And he told his disciples now, the next event is, wait in Jerusalem. And then he ascends to heaven. And he sent the Spirit later upon his disciples at Pentecost. You know the story, and I don't want to steal my thunder from two weeks from now, but the Holy Spirit being sent is a tremendous blessing. Then the disciples went to Rome and distributed the message about Jesus from there. That's what this book is about. Listen to how Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.23 that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 1 Peter 3. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is being highlighted there. His kingship. He's king over the world and the church, not just the world, not just the church. He's king over both the world and the church. Angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, he's king of all. So the the physical presence of Jesus departing from the world and the timing of that is ever so closely managed by the triune God. He departed from the world in order that his presence physically would be replaced by his presence spiritually, literally the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ with us by his Spirit. So one day, Jesus' physical presence is taken from us. Ten days later, his spiritual presence is granted to us. And looking ahead, what's past, what's past Pentecost is one day, Jesus' physical presence will again be our enjoyment. When he comes again, he breaks the cloud and comes down when he returns bodily. So the ascension of Christ and the timing of it is part of God's perfect plan, his perfect timing. So that was point number one, the timing of the ascension we learn about our king. Secondly, his witnesses. Key verse in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the author of the book of Acts, this doctor named Luke, was more concerned in our verses about what was said than about what physically happened. What was said is the interpretation of the historical events. It's not just that you guys need to know the facts. Amen, let's pray. You need to interpret the facts for your life. It's not just what physically happened. He wants to reiterate to them what was said about what happened. So we saw that in verse 6, the question posed by the disciples, now that Jesus has been raised to the dead, was God going to complete his purpose by finally establishing his rule now? Is this the time? And the answer Jesus gave in verse 7 had two aspects. The timing of the event remained a secret known only to God. And the second aspect is what was more important was that the disciples must focus on the words. The words tell them their role, their task. Your task is as witnesses. That's the aspect. About Jesus from Jerusalem and even to the ends of the earth, the whole earth needs to hear about this from you. 
from you and those who follow you through the church. The church witnesses to the world about these events. So the answer of Jesus had those two aspects. The witnesses, let's look at that. There are two senses of the word witness. One is observing, and the second is reporting. You could be there and see it, but don't tell anybody. You could be there and see it and then tell people. So there's those two aspects of witnessing that are at play here. An observing witness is one who's there at the right time in the right place so that you actually saw it with your own eyes. And a reporting witness is one who spoke to other people about what you had seen. A reporting witness is willing to tell others what you saw or what you knew. We get this all the time. You get updates on Ukraine, and they have so-and-so, hi, I'm live in Ukraine, telling us. It's not just that they see things. It's also that they're reporting things. So consider, for example, Acts 1 further down, verses 21 and 22, when Peter spoke about replacing Judas. Peter said, quote, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Acts 1, 21 to 22. So you know the story, right? Judas was dead. So instead of 12 disciples, they're down to 11. You can't have 11. You need to have 12. They had an opening, if you will. They'd have a recruitment process, right? One more must be added, so the number becomes 12. And this happens through Matthias becoming one of the 12. But in order for him to qualify to become one of the 12, he has to be an observing witness so that he can also be a reporting witness. See the both aspects? It was crucial and necessary for him to be an observing witness first. He actually saw all the things that Jesus did as well in order for him to join the group of 12 who represent the church, who will also be reporting witnesses to tell the world. It's a prerequisite. So if Matthias got the job, he must then also take on the role of a vocal witness. You already saw it with us. Now you have to speak up about it with us, what we call a witness who testifies. All the disciples were witnesses in the sense that they saw things. They were also witnesses in the sense that they proclaim the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, sending the Spirit and coming again. Now let's talk about location. In the reading the other book by Luke, the Gospel of Luke, our attention was directed to Jerusalem. Everything happens in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not the focus in the book of Acts. It was in Luke. So in Luke, Jesus suffered in Jerusalem, he died in Jerusalem, he rose again and ascended from Jerusalem. And here now in the book of Acts, our attention begins to be directed in a different location, a different city entirely. We end up in Rome. Why? The geographic focus of the book of Acts is Rome because that's first the destination for a Christ gospel and secondly, the distribution point for Christ's gospel. It gets spread to Rome and from Rome spread to the world. It's a worldwide distribution process. From Rome, the good news would later reach the entire world. So it's a mark of Christianity to this day that we give it away, that we spread it out. It's a common fact that everyone knows the Muslim religion requires people to travel to the holy city at some point during their lifetime. There is no such requirement in Christianity. You never have to go to a certain spot. 
We don't have that rule. We don't have that. In fact, Christianity is just the opposite in our base instruction. Our base instruction is to go. It's the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he says, therefore, to the church, he says to us as the church, go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. We are not to go to a certain place. We're not to gather in a certain place. We're to go to the ends of the earth. It's the fulfillment we see here in Acts 1-8 of the Great Commission. Our instruction from Christ is to spread out to find new and different places to go so that everywhere on the earth the church is and there it is telling the good news about Jesus. Death, resurrection, ascension, sending a spirit coming again. To give out the gospel. It all started right here in this key verse, Acts 1.8, to tell us to go to the ends of the earth. Very, very clear. I'll read it one more time. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's like dropping a pebble into water and see the ripples go out. It's intentional that way. It's the message and impression to send the gospel everywhere. Christian churches are to spread out, preach and teach about Jesus all over the globe. Christian church has always had a global mission. You can't study the death and resurrection of Christ without studying the ascension, and you can't study the ascension without being reminded of the message that we have a global mission and a global message. Third is his plans. What we learn about Christ through his ascension is his plans, verses 9 through 11. Here in verse 9 is the actual event. The actual ascension Jesus recorded in verse 9 that contains the historical reality. And then in verse 10, immediately after the ascension of Christ, the disciples were still standing there where it had just happened. So let me read verse 9 and 10 together. When he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Then verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So the disciples are still looking into the sky. He literally had just been lifted up. They didn't even get a chance to look down, look away, look at anything else. They were still looking at, where did he go? Is he coming back? What's happening here? Right? They're still looking into the sky. Meanwhile, at that moment, two men, I put air quotes here, two men appeared. They're clearly angels. What word would you like Luke to use? What is he supposed to write? He didn't know how else to report about them, but to write, they were two men in white robes. He's observing, he's reporting. (laughs) When we get to heaven, we have more of it explained. But I understand these to be angels. In verse 11, these men or these angels said to the disciples not to stand there looking into the sky. Why? Because Jesus will come back. And between when he goes and when he comes back, we got work to do. Don't stand there looking in the sky. Get to work. That's what he's saying to them. These angels are sent by God, obviously. Angels literally means messengers. They come with a message, and sure enough, they did. They brought a message. Don't stand there looking in the sky. There's angels at a lot of the major events of redemptive history. There's angels at Christmas. There's angels in Luke 24, 4, when Jesus rose again, aren't there? There's angels at the empty tomb. And what we learn about the plans of Jesus, along with these angels announcing these things, is the impact that it has upon Christ as our king and us in following him. We need to remember our king is victorious and his ascension tells us that 
and that he's coming again to collect us in victory and take us with him in that great parade when we enter the gates of heaven with him. The plan for Jesus is to come back. The plan for Jesus is to come back in exactly the way that he went. That's the value of this last verse. It's not a new plan. This is a repeated announcement and affirming of the plan that Jesus himself had taught during his earthly ministry. And remember the pattern? They were told all about it, still didn't cognate that puppy, right? They just didn't grasp it. They didn't understand. So they had been told that Jesus will rise and ascend. Consider Luke 21, 27, when Jesus said, At the end of the age, men will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Well, how is he going to come with a cloud unless he first goes away and then comes back? It's known. The plan is true and confirmed. It's just as Jesus ascended that day, so he will come back. Listen to uh, the statement in verse 11. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you look, stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what we know about the plan of Jesus is this. He will come back again in a cloud with power and great glory. This is where we get that from. What does it mean? His return will be visible initially through the cloud, but then breaking through the cloud to come, right? His return will be with a physical body, this very same body that he now has. That same glorified human body with which Jesus rose and went into heaven is the same physical body with which Jesus will come down out of heaven to earth to gather us and take us home. So in our third point, we've learned about the plans of Christ. What have we seen in the ascension of Christ? We learn about Christ our King. We learned about his timing, his witnesses, and his plans. I have three applications for us as believers in response to the ascension of Christ. Three applications. Number one, know Christ. Know him personally. Know the person of Christ. It's not enough to know about him. You could have all these things down in terms of the events of Christ, the facts of Christ, the verses here, but the whole goal is to know him, to know Christ. Don't miss what the disciples seemed to miss in this passage, to know Christ instead of the timing. Don't you ever get tired of people who say, when is he coming and when is he coming? That's all they want to talk about. That's all they want to study. They're making the same mistake the disciples initially were making on this day. Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We learned all these facts today about the ascension of Christ, not so that we know about Christ. We learned all these historical facts today about the redemptive history and the timing and how it all works in order that we may know Christ by faith, have a personal walking, living relationship with him. So instead of searching to find out the timing of his return, we need to rejoice in the fact that we know him. Knowing him is our priority. He will take care of the timing. Knowing him is our focus. By faith, we know Christ Jesus, our Lord. We get to know him better. Through studying his word, we know Christ and we grow in our knowledge of him. That's application number one. Application number two, remember the current activity of Christ our King. Remember the current activity of Christ our King. If we're going to think past Easter, we're going to think ascension, and then we're going to say, what is he doing up there? 
That's a great question. Stay on that train. Stay on that thought. Think about what Christ is doing for you now. He's invisible to us, but he's real. He's active. I'll tell you what he's doing. This is a whole sermon series. He prays for us. He rules the church. He rules the world. He's preparing a place for us in heaven, things like that. He's invisible to us, but we remember him. We're such a visual culture, aren't we? Have you, during 2022, seen video of your mayor, your state governor, your president, other members of Congress, all sides of leaders around the world, right? We have video clips all the time. That's what puts them into our minds, right? You have video leaders, videos of your, your leaders in your school, even here at the church. But our spiritual king is different fundamentally right now in the fact that during the calendar year of 2022, you don't have any sightings of Jesus and you don't have any videos of Jesus. The kingship of Jesus, though, is something we are to constantly remember and be mindful of, and not just the fact that he's king, but the fact that he's working for us, he's serving us, he's leading us, he's ruling and reigning and blessing us. He is in heaven, and there as our king victorious, he's entirely blocked from view, but you are to see him constantly by faith. You must remember that he has confirmed his plans for us. It's listed here. He's going to come down here the very same way he went up there in order to take us to be with him where he now lives in heaven. Consider John 14, too. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have to- would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. John 14, 2-3. That's our future. That's where we're going. We need to be mindful of his current activity as our high priest and as our king. The ascension of Christ encourages our minds to be on the things of heaven, up where Christ is, and, by the way, to keep your watch for his return. He'll return in the same way he went. So that was the second application. Remember the current activity of our king. Third, with Christ as our king, be encouraged about the condition of the church. I mean here the worldwide church. With Christ as our king, be encouraged about the condition of the worldwide church. The book of Acts begins by reporting about the ascension of Christ. Why? To answer that, let's consider how the book of Acts concludes. The last verse of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verse 31, tells us how the Apostle Paul was over in the city of Rome for two years already, quote, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, end quote, Acts 28, 31. So if we're going to answer why the book of Acts starts with the ascension of Christ, we also need to reflect on why the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome proclaiming Christ with all boldness. Because do you see the contrast? The big difference from the condition of the church at the start of Acts and the condition of the church at the end of Acts? My wife's a first grade teacher. When the students come in at the start of the year in September, in August or September, some of them know how to read, some of them have a few words down, but they're just basically kindergartners who are trying to be first graders. But by the end of the year, when you come to end of May, early June, they're all reading and they're reciting verses together. They've already prepared themselves to become second graders. 
It's the carrying over. It's the transition that happens. What the book of Acts tells us is how we went from the start to the finish. What do we have at the start? We have a small band of 11, not 12, one we lost. You know how we lost him. And a few others and a few women who had seen Jesus' ministry, they'd seen his crucifixion, his resurrection firsthand, but were characterized by grieving and fear. That's what we have. The worldwide church could be summarized in that. How is that looking? But the book that begins with fear and loss in Jerusalem ends with boldness and an expanding victory centered in the world city of Rome. So I think we ask ourselves a basic question about the book of Acts, the question that the book of Acts itself asks. How did that happen? How did that happen? We go from this small, frail, fearful group to a worldwide operational church. How did that happen? How did the church grow and become so bold from such a small and fearful beginning in Jerusalem? As Acts 1.8 puts it, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was the plan of Christ our King. Be encouraged about the condition of the church because Christ is the head of it. The actions of Jesus Christ is the answer how that happened. And it's surprise number one, crucified. Surprise number two, arose. Surprise number three, ascended. And surprise number four, <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm revealing this to you two weeks ahead of time, but you know the story. Sending his spirit is surprise number four, which we'll study in two weeks. The point is the actions of Jesus, the redemptive actions of Jesus, is what gives us hope regarding the condition of the church, hope regarding the condition of the worldwide church. It looks like a rickety machine, doesn't it? <laughs> When you look with human eyes at the condition of the church, it looks like a rickety machine. How are we supposed to get saved and have people around the world be saved from this weak-looking thing? Because we don't look at the church, we look at Christ. Where is he seated? He's seated in heaven at the right hand of God. He's our king. He's our head. And if he died to save us, he rose again to seal our victory. There is nothing that can stop him or his church from its successful worldwide plan. We see the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where God the Father says to Christ, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Christ is head over the world, all nations, so that he can use the whole world to benefit the church over which he's the head and king. Psalm 2 then ends with these words, and I'll end this sermon with this, Bless are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray.